Keep Your Cool is a podcast about Star Wars RPGs. Intro and outro music for the show is done by Luis Humanoid. Find him on YouTube, and his links will be in the description of the show. And cover art for the show is done by Silas Bazaar. His link's also in the description. Thank you for listening. Hello there. Welcome to episode one of the Keep Your Cool podcast. I'm your host, Davis Ballou. episode one i mentioned last week that i chose to go with episode zero in order to keep some of the pressure away and it took a lot of willpower not to go with episode one half or something like that for this week but but really i'm excited to get started uh last week i had some news slightly outdated news but news nonetheless uh this week and maybe for many future other weeks i'm afraid uh these games are going to be fairly news light uh they're printing old books again yes but there's no indication of any new books being written the only thing I would foresee in the near future, hopefully, would be a decrease on the Speeders and Starships book from somewhere under $250 on Amazon. Who knows? Uh, actually, as I say that, I'm seeing on their website there's a little bit of a ray of hope. There will be a live stream on January the 30th by Fantasy Flight that will supposedly focus on Star Wars RPGs. Probably just some exhibition game of some sort. But if there will be any news anytime soon, that would be the place. So hopefully I have something good to report back with next week. Alright, so last week I tested the waters of the show with a fairly well-known planet in the Outer Rim that, well, ironically, has very little water. And I'd say you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find someone who has watched any form of Star Wars and hasn't at least heard the name Tatooine. But this week, I decided to pick a planet that is that is, is exact opposite in every way. A little-known planet in the Inner Rim that contains vast oceans and rolling green hills. No, not Naboo, but the planet of Pijal. And as soon as I said that name, you likely understand what I mean by little known. In fact, this planet, which is spelled P-I-J-A-L if you're interested in looking it up, only appears in a meaningful way in one book. And that's Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice book. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. It's a great look into the relationship of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan just before Phantom Menace. I won't spoil any big plot points today in case you get the chance to read it later, which I recommend you do, like I said. But, as I mentioned earlier... Pijal is essentially the opposite of Tatooine in every way. The only way in which I would say they are similar is the fact that their populations are fairly sparse for planets of their size. In fact, Pijal's forested moon is said to be about the size of the planet itself, and has a population that is somewhat comparable to the body that it orbits. But I'll come back to the moon in a second. For now, I want to talk about the citizens of Pijal. Now, if you're a player and you're looking for a unique and possibly even obscure background for your character, this would certainly be a great birthplace to claim. The planet spent many thousands of years isolating itself from the galaxy abroad, keeping many of their ancient traditions fully alive and well by the time we meet them in the book just before the Clone Wars. In fact, the purpose of the Jedi's journey to the planet is to help them end this isolation with a new planetary government and the creation of a new hyperspace route going through their system. This would open them up to... Uh, business with the galaxy abroad. Now, I'll talk about two of the most important of these traditions I mentioned, starting with one of the, uh, with the most recreational of the two, and that is called the Grand Hunt. The Grand Hunt 
takes place just before the coronation of a new queen and provides a way for the incoming monarch to prove her ability for her people. To provide for her people, I'm sorry, yeah, to, prov to prove her ability to provide for her people. Now, when we're introduced to Bijal, they're an absolute monarchy in transition to a constitutional one, so just a more ceremonial uh, monarch taking the, taking the place. But despite that change, it's, it's pretty inferred that this tradition will continue. Now, in older times, the target of the hunt was an animal of some sort, but in the more modern eras, it has been substituted for a crab droid, not the separatist version of it, but um, a similar model. It's a more challenging, more challenging hunt to track down as much less work to corral it, keep it around, uh, maybe even uh, clean up once it's <laughs> once it's been slain. But the hunt is mainly for the benefit of the new queen's image. But despite that, many other citizens will participate in chasing the droid. Uh, all participants are armed with low-tech weapons so that no one can cheat, uh, pretty much. And they all ride Varactyls. Now, what's a Varactyl, you may ask? Well, if if you remember episode 3 on Utapau when Obi-Wan chases General Grievous when he's on that wheel bike, Obi-Wan is riding that green lizard, which is a Varactyl. But the difference is Pijal has, I guess, imported these many thousands of years ago from Utapau. And over the years, they have bred them uh, specifically for these hunts. Uh, much smaller hunts will occur, you know, whenever the grand hunt is not going on. It's kind of kind of a recreational sport there to sort of go on these hunts, typically anyway. So these varactyls are sort of bred for that. And uh, they are much slimmer and much faster than the ones we see on Utapau. And these varactyls are also red, which is, I guess, a side effect of whatever breeding they had. I don't guess there'd be any positive value to them intentionally doing that. Who knows? Perhaps if a player character is from Pijal, they would have some obligation linking them to the hunt causes them to return to the party to the planet with the party in the book we see that things can and have gone wrong with the hunt including sabotage droids armed combatants in thick forests and other deadly obstacles maybe the players need to uncover some sort of plot to destabilize the planet's government like qui-gon and obi-wan find who's causing it and why well gms you may have an easy answer to that question a group called the black guard hiding out on pijal's moon has expressed their distaste with the recent changes being brought to the uh, by the wider galaxy with violent acts of terrorism throughout the planet. Though the partisans seem to be quelled by the end of the book, who knows what sort of remnant hides hidden in the forest of the moon. There's certainly a force to be reckoned with if they have found a source of crystals on the moon that gives off a very powerful energy. Kyber crystals? No, but easily mistaken for them, certainly. These colon crystals, spelled K-O-H-L-E-N, not C-O-L-O-N, are said to be less powerful than kyber crystals, but due to certain space magics that I won't try and understand, their, their energy can be used to power personal shields that are quite resistant to blaster bolts and kyber-powered lightsabers alike. In fact, we see that the only energy that is able to penetrate the field created by colon energy is colon energy. Did you get all that? Well, good. It's all a bunch of space magics anyway, so you don't necessarily need to comprehend why, but GMs just understand that special modifications to weapons will be needed should your players run into some Blackguard remnant during their time on the planet, as their little personal bubble shields are pretty dead, well, not necessarily deadly, but a great stopping force, difficult to overcome. Should players find their own stash of these crystals, they would be able to use them to power their weapons, but the only advantage would be the ability to pierce through the pop possible shielding like I mentioned earlier. Other than that, it can pretty much be assumed that their damage output is less than other sources, and thus the market for them on the galactic scale is rather low. 
However, if you have a bounty hunter in your party who is maybe tasked down with taking down a lightsaber wielder, this would not be a bad option for them to pick up in preparation for some sort of confrontation in the future. Okay, I said there were two important traditions, so let's talk about the one that's more meaningful to the people. The people of Pijal value the inner beauty of an object over its external beauty. So you can see that if you just look at the royal palace, which I know you can't, but it literally sits inside of a mountain. You truly have to know where you're going to get there. On the inside, however, it's relatively as ornate as any other planetary palace you visit. They take this value of beauty to the extreme with the sort of religious pilgrimage that they take. I say religious as the voyage was rumored to have stemmed from an ancient form of force worship. The travelers enter these small space vessels known as soul craft and are taken into space beyond the planet. They experience the darkness and zero gravity of space in these rudimentary ships and in doing so become more appreciative of their own planet's beauty. Again, this could be some sort of obligation or some point that ties a player to the system that causes them to bring the party on a trip back home. Just as before, there are places where this can go wrong, including sabotage soulcraft and possibly hostile ships in the area when the journey is being taken. Players may have to defend a soulcraft or pilot one safely back to the planet. Before I get to my final point, there is a side note that I think is fairly interesting. Pijal, especially its government, has strong ties to Zerka Corporation, the arms dealers. You'd recognize that name from the Old Republic games, the D6 source books, or even the Fly Casual Smuggler book. Their influence on the planet is very detrimental to the citizens of Pijal, and toward the end of the book, the government tries to cut ties with the corporation. If you want to send your players to Pijal but don't have any players originating from the system, perhaps they could meet a Zerka executive who wants to exert power over the system again, as they took advantage of the planet financially for many years, using some of their citizens as slave labor even. They could send the players on a mission to negotiate in various fashions, peaceful or otherwise. Or maybe they left something behind that they want back, something lost on the moon or tucked away in the royal palace where they once had a place on the court before that pesky new constitution took effect. So, as they enter the planet's atmosphere, players will likely notice a golden shine encompassing the planet, emanating from those bulky clay boxes that are floating in the, floating around. Well, those happen to be shield generators, though an old and a weak one. While it doesn't necessarily have the power to keep out unwanted ships, that is not its purpose. Its purpose is actually to protect the planet from intense solar flares that occur in the system once every decade or so. So here's the scenario I kind of envisioned for that. A group of players is on the planet, perhaps to take the spacefaring pilgrimage, let's say. The trip is delayed as planetary scientists claim that the solar flares are, to, are due to be occurring soon. They assure players that there is no reason to worry, the shields are tested and true many, over many generations, but what if? What if something went wrong? Somehow the integrity of the shield is compromised, perhaps a generator has failed? What then? Well, the Vajali have backups, surely, right? If so, someone has to install them. Could the party help? Will they bail out? How will that affect their dark side and light side leanings? Well, if they have no replacements, it's unlikely that the party are carrying around ancient generators of their own. Though, with some of my players that I corral, that might not actually be so surprising. In that case, some sort of evacuation plan would need to be enacted. How could the party show leadership in that scenario? With that, I will wrap up the discussion of Pijal. Really, any more is kind of getting into the nitty-gritty. All you really need to, to know beyond that is sort of the ecosystems. And I mentioned that at, beginning, at the beginning. The moon is forested and kind of has these gem deposits with, with various cave systems and 
those caves are also on the planet itself, which is much more Earth-like with its you know broad oceans and hills and mountains and stuff like that. Uh, and in those mountains are caves where maybe some secrets could be found. Planets like this really showcase my reasoning for starting this podcast. Places like Tatooine come so easily and comfortably into my mind because I've seen it so much and I'm so familiar with it with very extra, with very little extra research. If my party needs to, if my party needs somewhere to go, it's it's a go-to for me. But interesting planets like Pijal, with their unique cultures, are all over the place, and I believe deserve a place in our games as well. I'll end the episode with a quick story from one of my own games. It's my first time running a game of Force and Destiny, the one that's more focused on Force users and their journey after Order 66. The characters in this are Kobe, Methuselah Honeysuckle, and Zoku. So, Kobe, as soon as the episode, I, I suppose you could say, begins, takes some scrap from around the ship and figures out that they are on their way to the planet of Iriadu, which is the home planet of Grand Moff Tarkin. After the party determines this fact, he uses some of the scrap he has found to create a bobblehead in the likeness of Grand Moff Tarkin. Methuselah and Zoku are fascinated by what he's made, and Methuselah decides to install a voice box onto the, onto the toy that whenever the head is pressed, it delivers Tarkin's famous Episode Four line, You may fire when ready, whenever the Death Star uh, is being fired at Alderaan. So, with their new toy in hand, they go and accomplish whatever their goals are on Iriadu, and on the way out, they decide to make a stop at a local factory. The factory, run by a Deveronian, <clears throat> just specialized in general mass production, and they spoke to the manager, the Deveronian I mentioned earlier, and gave him the bobblehead and the uh, the plans for it and began negotiations. Well, after about a week's time, they get a call with a deal, and after some negotiation, uh, they entered quite a lucrative contract to mass produce their new bobbleheads, uh, I suppose as some sort of tribute to Tarkin for the Iriadu people. So, with the, it's been a long time since we've played this campaign, but hopefully we'll start it back up again soon, and when we do, they'll have a lot of credits coming their way, and Kobe will finally be able to satisfy his end goal of purchasing a Star Destroyer. But the one issue that I don't think any of them have thought through yet is the fact that, uh, well, once you get a Star Destroyer, you need a crew. But they'll figure that out eventually. Well, anyway... I hope you enjoyed the show. I um, kind of like these shorter deep dives here. Let me know what you think. Uh, like I said, I'm over on uh, Reddit at r slash KYC podcast, Instagram at KYC pod. Tell me what you think of the show. Tell me what sort of things you want to hear about. Uh, tell me if there's any other sort of segments you want to uh, add in. I think I want to maybe put in uh, some more segments, maybe highlighting some different sorts of weapons and that sort of thing that you could include. And now, as the music from Luis starts to swell back in, I will leave you with this. May the Force be with you always.